This episode of the American Birding Podcast is brought to you by Field Guides. Our friends at Field Guides have led birding tours around the world since 1985. Their friendly expert leaders have joined together to create a new video series. Outbirding with Field Guides is all things birds, adventure, conversations with interesting bird people, ornithology, tales of discovery, cooking in the field even. Now, even when you're home, you can always go out birding with field guides. Visit outbirding.com slash ABA to check those videos out and subscribe. Hello and welcome to the American Birding Podcast from the American Birding Association. I'm your host, Nate Swick. Thank you once again for joining me. We talked Migratory Bird Treaty Act recently, and thankfully the courts stepped in and stopped those proposed changes. We talked about that a couple months ago, but here we are once again in 2020, tasked with protecting landmark environmental policy. This time it is the Endangered Species Act, another piece of legislation that, while not as old as the MBTA, is once again as endangered as the species it purports to protect. The threat does not come from the executive branch this time, but from the legislative branch, specifically Senator John Barrasso of Wyoming, who has introduced a bill to amend the ESA, ostensibly to increase transparency, but as with all of these things, the devil is in the details. And without going too much into those devilish details, uh, this bill essentially does three things. The first thing it does is it elevates the roles of states in decision-making, uh, but does so in a way that is an unfunded mandate. So basically increasing the responsibility on individual states, individual state lawmakers to protect endangered species in terms of planning, listing, delisting, but not providing them with additional funds to do that, which means that it won't get done, uh, which means that species don't get the protection they need. The second thing it does is it focuses on litigation. It gets rid of what is called judicial review for five years after a species is delisted. So it basically gives industry or whomever opposed the listing in the first place of a species a five-year grace period during which Audubon or Defenders of Wildlife or any other litigious environmental organization is unable to take legal action to challenge that delisting. Alternately, there is no grace period for the listing of a species on the front end of that process, which is when industry will be the one to throw up the legal roadblocks. They will continue to be able to do so. And the third point, um, it's not likely to improve conservation outcomes as claimed because, well, obviously it's not the intent. The intent is to weaken this act without actually coming out and saying that you're weakening the act. Uh, the Endangered Species Act is not a perfect piece of legislation by any means. None of them really are. There's too much sausage making in the process for them to be perfect. And it absolutely could be better both for endangered species and for the people involved in protecting those species on private land. We should absolutely urge legislators to make this act better. But those solutions are primarily on the implementation side and the funding side, not the sort of fundamental restructuring of what it means to list and delist a species as this would do. Um, I will clarify that this bill is still in early days. Senator Barrasso has only just introduced it to the Senate in the middle of September, so not long ago. It is not on the floor. It has not been debated. The Senate has a lot of other things going on right now, including Supreme Court nomination and elections. So it's something right now probably to keep an eye on. But if you want to get ahead of the game and contact your senators about it, it is Senate Bill 4589. I will link to the text in the show notes and point you to some text you can use 
if that is made up between now when I'm recording and Thursday when this podcast is released. On the show this week, nocturnal flight calls, nocturnal migration, NFC's knockmeg. It doesn't matter what you call it. There are loads of birds passing overhead nearly every night right now. And birders in the U.S. and the U.K. have been increasingly aware of them. In fact, Knockmeg has become a full-fledged, no pun intended, obsession among many British birders, including my guest, Mark James Pearson. He joins me to talk about Knockmeg magic after this week's Rare Birds. This is your Rare Bird Focus for the end of September 2020. We got some good birds to report, man. I, I love fall. In Florida, a state where firsts are hard to come by, a hermit warbler in Palm Beach County is not only a first for that state, but a first for the entire southeast. Hermit warbler is the least likely of the western warblers to turn up in the eastern half of the continent, but with incredible numbers of black-throated grays and even a couple McGillivrays warblers showing up this fall, perhaps it was inevitable. Up in Newfoundland, an ABA Code 4 corn crake was flushed from a thicket at Cape Race on the Avalon Peninsula. This is the third modern record of this European rail on the island, adding to two Newfoundland records from the 1800s. And at the other end of Canada, a bizarre pairing in British Columbia where the province's second record of red-legged kittiwake was seen at Deep Bay. While not all that far away, the province's third record of Nazca Booby was seen near Galliano Island, both sightings on the southeastern part of Vancouver Island. The kittiwake, of course, a bird of the Bering Sea in Alaska, and the Nazca Booby, a bird that breeds off the southern tip of the Baja Peninsula in West Mexico. I can't decide whether the pairing of both of these birds in the Strait of Georgia is an incredible thing or an alarming thing. Uh, I suppose it can be both. Those are the highlights for the week, as always, for a more complete look at the rare birds seen across the U.S. and Canada. And there were a lot of other cool birds this week. Check out the ABA's Rare Bird Alert every Friday morning at aba.org rba. Or you can go to our Rare Bird Facebook page at facebook.com groups slash ABA Rare. Or follow us on Twitter at ABA Bird Alert. Recording and identifying nocturnal flight calls has been a popular way for birders in the ABA area to document migration and has inspired an entire community to keep track of those seeps and chips passing overhead this time of year. Uh, the COVID-19 pandemic and stay-at-home orders all over the world have motivated a similar passion in the famously intense UK birding community and birders recording and documenting NOCMIG, as it's called, uh, have made some fascinating discoveries about migration in Europe. My guest is Mark James Pearson. He's been all over that. He is a naturalist and writer, among other things, based in Yorkshire, United Kingdom. Mark, welcome. It's great to talk to you again. Thanks, Nate. Yeah, it's a pleasure to be on. Thanks for having me. Uh, so tell me about how nocturnal migration grabbed you. Well, basically, it was it grabbed me this spring, and it was very much a, a kind of um, a thing which dovetailed uh, into the kind of the panic of the pandemic and of, <laughs> kind of other avenues seemingly closing down around us for enjoying birding. And previously, um, I kind of discarded the possibility of even trying it because I live uh, I live in a place which is, even though it's a small town, my immediate environment is very urban mm -hmm. and there's no gardens. It's kind of three-story terrace buildings. Nowhere to put kind of uh, the what I thought the gear you required uh, out in the open and nowhere to kind of lots of street noise all that kind of thing and maybe it was kind of 
too expensive and too complicated. But what really kind of kickstarted it for me was, um, with all that in mind, uh, literally just being brushing my teeth in the bathroom at night uh, in late March and hearing clear as day uh, a flock of common scoter uh, going really low over my chimney pots like in the town and this just this gorgeous kind of alien beeping really really low overhead and it was just you can imagine how enchanting that is and I'm just like yeah. oh my god common scoters that's insane uh, and that kind of plugged into you know other people saying well we've got common scoters going out of houses and things and it just that kind of community suddenly spread and that's not to kind of um denigrate the the pioneers have been doing it for years and we're just mm. you know kind of johnny come lately's or whatever um but that's a big part of it for me and a, a caveat i would say is that you know very much a novice um it's an aspect of birding which is a really steep and fun learning curve but there yeah. are many who know much more about it than i do if you like yeah so so what is sort of the the background of nocturnal migration recording in the UK have there been birders that have been have been doing this for some time now I guess yeah there have absolutely um people have been doing it for years and again you know people who have really sparked my interest over the years and have been to talks and things like that and you're watching uh, what they're doing and they're demonstrating it and I'm thinking this would be great but like I say like um, it just seemed like a pointless exercise to try it with my um, my circumstances. It just seemed an absolute waste of time. What am I going to get? Just kind of, you know, a bunch of drunk people in the back alley every three or four months <laughs> or something. Um, so, uh, uh, so it was always tempting to do it, but it always seemed practically pointless, if you like. Uh, but what I didn't really realize is that I could do what I'm still doing now with what I think is, you know, great success, at least relatively speaking, is just sticking a recorder out of a window. <laughs> yeah. So what is your setup and sort of your process for analyzing the calls that you pick up? Right. Well, I think this is where hopefully uh, this is going to be of interest to um, birders listening to this who uh, were in a, are in a similar situation to me a few months ago, i.e., a little bit blinded by it, a little bit like fascinated and would like to dip their toe in, but at the same time just think, well, is it cost prohibitive? Is it too complicated? Mm -hmm, right. It's not. And this is why, um, you know, I think anybody can do it. Absolutely anybody can do it. My setup is, uh, in a nutshell, is a handheld um, sound recorder, MP3 sound recorder. But it's a basic uh, Olympus model I use, or you can use the basic Tascam models, there are various other ones available. Um, and you can get those. I mean, over here, they're like 60, 70 quid or whatever. So you could probably get them for, you know, $80, whatever that might be. They're really simple to use. You know, it's kind of press record, you know, make go right. through basic settings, yeah. make sure it's not peaking too much, make sure, you know, v various, very simple things you can follow um, instructions for online or whatever. And then, you're basically good to go. And my setup is, um, you know, I looked at where I am. And like I say, this urban environment um, pointing out into a back alley in the middle of a town. What can I do? And there was no point in me getting, uh, you know, fancy parabolics or shotgun mics or those yeah. things which are amazing and which, you know, if I had the circumstances, I would probably be using. <laughs> right. But, you know, I was like, well, they're just not physically practical. So what can I do? And, 
what I do is literally crack open my study window and put a plastic covering over the recorder itself and jam it in the crack in the window. And voila, you have knockouts right. happening before your ears, you know. Yeah. Um, and as far as that's my recording setup, as far as analyzing it goes, um, it's really easy. You just download, uh, upload the file, um, and then you open it with, I open it with Audacity. Yeah. Uh, Audacity is really great, very simple. Uh, you know, free uh, free software to use. It's actually what I use to uh, to edit interviews for this podcast. <laughs> yeah, it's, 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 so, I mean, it's very sure robust. Yeah, savvy than I, but, um, yeah. but yeah, it's easy, isn't it? Yeah, yeah. So yeah, so Audacity is fantastic. You open it in that, and you know, not to kind of uh, get too technical about it. Effectively, you have the sonogram of the night's recording uh, in front of you, and you scroll through it. Of course, it's not practical to scroll through it because that's just in hours. real time. <laughs> yeah. Probably better off if you're burden. Yeah. yeah, like eight hours every morning. <laughs> <laughs> that's a long process, isn't it? You know? <laughs> I know people have done things like, like as you say, like pretty simple setups. I, I know birders here have set up, you know, like flower pots and put the recorder inside it and made like this really cheap ceramic parabolic mic that has gotten yeah. these things. It's amazing what you can get with uh with very minimal upkeep and very minimal outlay initially it is it is there's yeah. all kinds of you know diy setups and yeah for me i've kind of spread from um you know my sort of addiction has got sort of more severe in the sense that it's gone from not just recording from my study window but i live here on the coast uh in filey north yorkshire so i'm on like a i'm at a really fantastic place for bird migration so just beyond the town limits kind of only five ten minutes away I operate another recorder in a field near to the clifftop, mm. and that is literally in a um, you know a large plastic water bottle cut in half, uh, weighed down with some gravel, padded out with some bubble wrap, recorder in the middle, cling film stretched over the top, press record, stick it in a field, and that is my <laughs> extremely you know complex nuanced uh, knock mig setup on the coast. Yeah. Here. Will you talk about where you say that uh, even in a place in the middle of a town with a lot of extraneous noises, you can still get some amazing things. That's one thing that's really amazed me about, you know, the growth of this uh, interest in the UK. You know, there are people recording in London, which is like very much a 24 hour stuff going on yeah. at all times city. And they're picking up bird migration. Yeah. Fantastic, isn't it? I mean, this is yeah, it's, it's wild. Yeah, it's just, yeah, miraculous. And, you know, magical in the sense that the playing field is absolutely leveled. Um, mm -hmm. I am very fortunate to live where I do and to, to be able to get all my kind of migration fixes on my doorstep. But um, you can absolutely do it in the middle of the city. Um, you can absolutely do it anywhere because, you know, the beauty of it is birds migrate obviously day and night, but when they're migrating at night, it could be absolutely anywhere. So you're, as, you, you're kind of in as much, you have as much chance of recording something you know, really fantastic, whether contextually or nationally or whatever, yeah. uh, in Birmingham, you know, as you do uh, at Spurn, you just never know what you're going to get. You know, that that kind of, uh, you know, the greater yellow legs calling as it goes over, could easily go over Birmingham instead of, instead right. of Spurn or Fair Isle or whatever. Yeah. Are there, are there any resources that are available for this sort of thing for European birds? You know, we're lucky here in North America that uh, Bill Evans and Michael O'Brien wrote 
flight calls of migratory birds in the early 2000s and really turned people on to the possibilities of nocturnal flight calls. NFC is what we call them. Yeah, um, right. Is there anything like that in the UK, in Europe? So as far as hard copy goes, I would uh, very heartily recommend uh, the Sound Approach series. Mm -hmm. The Sound Approach team are amazing. And there's, um, there's a whole range of books they've produced and online, their website is uh, a great place, not only to start, but mm -hmm. to kind of bury yourself in and, and familiarize yourself, not just with nocturnal sound calls. They have a kind of growing section, ID section on there, but also with the process. Um, it's a really, it, that's a great place to get yourself lost in Nokmik, is that is the sound approach site. Um, also, yeah. uh, just Nokmik, there's a, a Nokmik.com site, um, which is great, full of instructions, not so much ID on there, but that's more kind of the practicalities and logistics sure, of it. Yeah. It even goes through step by step how to set up Audacity, um, literally an idiot's guide. And even I managed <laughs> in kind of 20 minutes or something and shocked myself, you know. Um, but as far as the guides go, I mean, we rely heavily on um, on Xeno Canto, of yeah. course, which is just, you know, again, a, a free magical resource, which... Um, course there you've got a lot of worldwide calls and it can yeah. be needless. Yeah, we've, we've sung the praises of uh xeno canto here before uh, i know my colleague ted floyd who does a lot of you know nfc uh flight call work at night um really big fan of of xeno canto for obvious it's reasons it's an it amazing website amazing. Yeah, yeah it really is in the sense that you can obviously you can upload your own calls so you're adding to mm -hmm. your greater kind of hive mind if you like but um you know if you think you've got something um you know, whether it's a difficult um, heron call, heron slash egret call, you know, go on there and you can look at, you can lose yourself in 50 variations of little egret, you know, <laughs> right. and you might find some really good matches, you know, and you'll be like, okay, yeah. this has taken me in the right direction. I think where that's concerned, and especially not been an expert in these things, you know, what personally I benefit greatly from is the community thing. So we have... We have a, a few of us who uh, who record locally, have a, a local WhatsApp group, and then there's you know other WhatsApp groups, Facebook groups, etc. And I think without that community support and input, you're kind of flailing around in the dark, no pun intended. Yeah, you know, <laughs> right. It really is like, what the hell is this call? And it could be, yeah, you could be going for hours and hours at this call, and it turns out to be. I don't know, a blue tip or a uh, you know, a car alarm malfunctioning five miles away or whatever it might be. <laughs> yeah. So so what have UK birders discovered through this this year, through this, you know, explosion of of knockmeg uh, birders that you didn't know before it became so popularized? I think the fascinating thing, I mean the, the personally fascinating thing for me and uh subsequently how i found out other people were getting the, uh, the same results was mm -hmm. uh warbler migration in the spring so mm -hmm. warblers notoriously quiet many apparently silent uh when migrating um but here we were recording and this is very much in the early the first few weeks of us trying locally and i recorded what seemed to me to be a snatch of uh, black cap song I was like, well, surely not. My environment is completely urban. Uh, <laughs> yeah. You know, all there is is concrete, literally. There's no chance that bird, unless it's stupid enough to sit kind of, you know, on a rooftop. Um, and you can, of course, you can also judge that the birds are coming through as their as their calls get closer and then further away. But right, where yeah. that's concerned with the black cap, I was like, you know, 
this just seems extraordinary. But then that week, a few of us were getting those. And then I look at, you know, uh, contacts on Twitter, contacts around the UK. And they're like, we had the same thing this week. And of course, it's suspected and some people do expect it, but many others consider it almost an impossibility. Clearly, that's not the case. Clearly, there are black caps migrating over areas where there is absolutely no habitat to pitch down, delivering these kind of clarion call, you know, uh, NFCs as they go over whatever habitat it might be. And to have discovered that, obviously, that's not my discovery, but it's this kind of collective right. wow moment. Um, and we've had lesser white throats doing exactly the same. Um, hmm. So they're, you know, long distance, proper kind of trans-Saharan migrants, incredibly going very low over you know, these urban environments delivering these little calls. And that's just, that's been really magical. And the common scoters as well, because birds were leaving, they they migrate over, over land. They're a sea duck, but I mean, they're coming from, these birds are coming from, you know, the Irish Sea. And they were taking off mass from the Irish Sea at dusk. And we were getting them as they flew east over Lancashire and, and Yorkshire. We were getting them a few hours later as they were, you know, sensing and smelling the North Sea and coming down low yeah. over my house with these massively excited kind of cacophonies of calls. And that's just, yeah, wonderful. And there was a huge common scoter migration this year um, during that time. And we could even kind of plot the flight paths they were taking and they were, huh. using, they were using valleys. They were u- definitely using flight lines, which they've huh. probably been used for, you know, generations, but we've only just started clicking onto so there's so much to discover, Nate. I would say that the amazing thing about it is the sort of voyage of discovery element is that yeah, absolutely. there's tons not known and there's tons of surprises just kind of happening uh, uh, all the time right now. Do you notice a difference between the recorder that you have set up uh, at your home and the recorder that you've set up in the field towards the coast? Do you see similar migration on a given night or is there, you know, there are elements that are more coastal or more you know, interior. Right. And that's a really good question. And I would say, uh, I don't know if um, you're familiar with the fact that I live um, in the middle of a herring gull colony. <laughs> okay. So, no, I did not know that. <laughs> right. <laughs> so a certain amount of uh, of uh, noise, like constantly. Just <laughs> like you would not believe. So, I mean, to the point where, you know, I was scrolling through kind of, you know, seven or eight hours and approximately 90, 95% is just the kind of horrific squeals <laughs> and screams of juvenile herring gulls and right. adults. Yeah. So it's, that was uh, one of the reasons I was planning on it anyway, but I kind of brought my uh, intention to spread, to spread bet, if you like, up onto the North Cliff. Uh, <laughs> I brought that forward a bit because like you wouldn't, I'm probably some kind of accidental expert in, yeah. in those hideous calls <laughs> hearing the herring. screams of herring gulls in your nightmares yeah <laughs> yeah they cover every frequency they cover every type of call from tiny little chips and beeps right through to you know what you would expect the kind of howls and screams and so <laughs> back to your point just with that in mind um i kind of honed my uh, early knockmig uh, enthusiasm and skills by looking for gaps in the herringle, uh, <laughs> in the herringle mess. Yeah, I'm trying. I'm like really stubbornly trying to like eke out uh, NFCs, and it really worked. So huh. when I started running my recording uh, on the North Cliff, 
which ironically is not um, polluted in inverted commas by ghouls at all. So huh. in a town which tells its own story, that's a whole other conversation about ghoul adaptation and all the rest of it, of course. But up there, you know, I I, uh, I get the uh, the sonogram back, and I open up the sonogram in audacity, and it's this beautiful, clear clean band where i can pick out anything and suddenly you feel like a real pro because you're like yeah right. i know what that is <laughs> no herring yeah so yeah i do see differences and i see differences um quite a lot regarding the species makeup i tend to catch um those more kind of coastal migrants mm-hmm. like um terms i'm doing really well for up on the coast but it is a good it's it's set back from the coast it's not like on the cliff top so it's not picking up um you know seabirds per se but mm-hmm. it's picking up things which i think are more likely to stick strictly to the you know to the coast huh that's really interesting have uk birders discovered any vagrants using these recordings yeah i think i mean there are there are plenty of uh, of instances of complete shocks um there was uh, one guy, Gavin in the south, um, picked up an absolutely beautiful uh, call of um, black-crowned night heron. Huh. Um, he was beginner at the same time, you know. So we, various people getting into it, and that's one of those absolute shock moments where clearly it's like um, you would need some um, some backup with that. You yeah. need to float it amongst the community and you know, whatever, and it's clear as day. Beautiful black crown night heron. Um, my friend and birding uh, uh, colleague Dan, uh, who lives uh, inland of Scarborough, just a little further up the coast here, uh, he runs one in his back garden, um, and it's just a regular suburban area. And he has an absolutely perfect um, recording of leeches, storm petrel. Oh, wow. Below yeah i mean incredible. <laughs> that's wild yeah scarce bird on the coast you'd yeah. be really really happy to see one in a strong northerly gale here on the, the north sea coast you know be like wow i've got a leech's petrol amazing sea watching um to have one you know clear as a bell over his house um incredible stuff yeah. you know it really is and it's all contextual i mean the fact that when I mean, i've had bitten over which is we probably have one one annual record in the local area, one diurnal record. Um, so to have again crystal clear recording of the bittern, even things like quail, which you know are migrating out there, but you know common quail yeah. is no longer common at all, and it's a really special bird uh, to hear in the daytime. But to have physically had to have recorded two over my house again in the context of you know concrete and clay. Um, really really low you know really nice recordings wow. my great night it's great and th- those things are, are not going to get old you yeah know what i mean that's yeah. kind of it's a gift that keeps on giving from that point of view yeah it certainly gives you a much broader you know understanding of the bird life in your area than what you would get just going out birding in the morning it does. and trying to trying to see stuff like you like you you have to know that things like common quail are passing over because obviously they're to the north of you and they're coming from the south but to know that this is the route they're taking this is where they're going this is happening while you're sleeping it's 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 amazing that's one of the most incredible things about this whole thing it is to think that you know to think that uh you know a a gate this amazingly long distance migratory game bird that could comfortably sit in the palm of your hand is Mm -hmm. gunning through 
a herringle colony in the middle of a town <laughs> at night and call. Yeah, but the herringles would like to know that it's going through too. <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> Thank God their night vision isn't greatly improved. <laughs> right, yeah. <laughs> but at the same time, I mean, you're right. It's a, a lovely knock-on effect of that is that it's it really sharpens your skills in the daytime. Mm-hmm. So I've just seen, um, you know, kind of a really uh, subconscious improvement in my kind of red alert, if you like, for, for calls. Yeah. I can't visit a local wetland without being in this weird knock-mig um, virtual <laughs> helmet where everything I hear yeah. is like, that's, yeah, that's that, that's that, that's, you know, and you, you're looking, you're listening to waders as if they're going over as opposed to kind of stood in front of your shorebirds. It's uh, hmm. it's really interesting how it's, it subconsciously improves your birding skills. I was going to say, does it make it easier to be a birder during the daytime because you're taking in more of this, all this extra information and synthesizing it in a way that helps you identify birds better. I think it does. I think it does. And I think where I'm concerned, like, you know, with calls, calls on everybody's back and I appreciate that. But, um, I mean, you know, it's, it's such a huge percentage of birding and and IDing Mm. comes from, you know, songs and calls. Yeah. And it's just that process of being able to kind of you know, sift out the junk, and I don't mean that. Nothing's junk, of course, bird-wise. But except for the herringles. Except obviously. for the herringles, which can, <laughs> I'm not going to say that. They're red list. <laughs> I've got to be nice about it. You know? I, like, I like a herringle, but uh, yeah, I can see how they'd be obnoxious <laughs> for this. I love them too, but I mean, is it anyway that we have this colony here, and um, because they breed on the chimney pots, uh, you know, um, unfledged juveniles uh, regularly fall onto the street and, you know, put themselves <laughs> at great... And is it any way to thank me for rescuing a whole country <laughs> right. every year? <laughs> the least you could do is one hour exactly. of uninterrupted screaming. Yeah. yeah. All they do is just scream at me at night. <laughs> I love them to bits. So what do you think the, the future is for this stuff? Do you think post-pandemic the UK birders are going to continue to embrace this? I think so. I think as with anything like this, there's a kind of... Um, you know, there's a, an initial rush of enthusiasm and then mm. naturally that kind of wanes, especially with circumstances changing and, you know, lots of people kind of, I guess, dropped off as the season wore on and as uh, lockdowns were lifted. Although, as you may know, uh, that may be, uh, you know, going the other direction <laughs> quite soon. So have yeah. your recorders at the ready once again. Um, <laughs> but I think, I think, I do think it's kind of here to stay in the sense that, you know, it's sort of reached a critical mass where enough people are interested and enough people are contributing on a wider level, you know, via social media, uh, you know, via online channels. That um, I think it will definitely keep becoming more popular. I think there is a lot more room for, um, you know, for kind of gathering data in a more meaningful way. I think track talent mm-hmm. is amazing for that. But track talent only has a small amount of usage compared to how many people I think are doing it. I do think, you know, around the corner, given the opportunity and the support or whatever, there is definitely another level to take off yeah. to. You know, I think there really is. Speaking, you know, to the NFC community in in North America, it does seem like there is a it's a relatively small but incredibly intense and very serious group of birders. Right. And while it's not something that I mean, I don't have a recorder. I, I I'd sort of be curious to put one up in my backyard because I, you know, I do see I do see migration happening around my home, but uh, it's never something that's really grabbed me. 
but I do have friends that are like super, super, super into it. Like it's, it's like, it's all or nothings. It feels right. like. <laughs> what, what were the reasons out of interest? It hasn't really grabbed you thus far. Uh, you know, just, just, I don't have the recorder on me and I just mm. have been too lazy to, to get it. <laughs> it's essentially the thing. Um, yeah, that, that's pretty much it. I mean, it's the sort of thing that maybe if I actually started getting into it, things would, would change, but, uh, yeah, yeah I, th- maybe there's the perception of, of nocturnal flight calls being sort of difficult, which, which may or may not be true. It doesn't sound like it is. I mean, certainly there are flight calls that are extremely easy for people to recognize on that i mean i would say sorry to cut in i would say no no no. as far as the idea of them goes and like i say um you know i'm on a very steep learning curve for that right yes now. yeah but what i would say is the vast majority are instantly ideable um now of course yeah. that is in the context of where i am as well um maybe off the top of my head you could argue it's going to be harder where you are because of the various different species you have which give nocturnal flight calls um, mm-hmm. and maybe more give similar calls if you see what i mean um o- yeah over here the vast majority are identifiable there are always a small percentage which are unidentifiable and frankly you basically been you know i have like an x file yeah. of all these unidentified calls and i don't expect necessarily to be able to id them ever maybe i'll get a few you know back and then there are those which you just have to put to people who are better qualified than you you know but i think when you get into your stride which doesn't take long um i think you know maybe 70 80 percent are instantly recognizable which is enough of a victory to keep going if you know what i mean yeah yeah that's true that's that's a good point maybe maybe i'll dig out my old recorder and put some new batteries in it and see what i can find i mean right now you know we're kind of you you may be a little past peak where you are we are coming into peak fall migration right now from a, a kind of just going back to your point of it being quite a um you know a, a committed hardcore community i think kind of conversely what this new surge of uh beginners and inverted commas like myself has kind of created with our knockmate community is in fact the opposite in the sense that it's a bit it's less competitive than regular birding. There's some aspects of regular mm. birding, I should say. It's less intense because there's that issue of like, um, you know, if the bird disappears, <laughs> you're like, okay, I didn't. Yeah, well, when you're recording, it's it's going to be gone. Like, there's no way to go and find something that you recorded the night before. It's gone. Yeah, <laughs> and if I record a little bit of uh, my house and you know, I analyze it the next day or the day after, whatever. If it's an identifiable little bit. That's wonderful. It's not going anywhere. It's on my tape. You know, it's on my recording. Yeah, right. And there's no yeah. crazy rush to think, oh, I've got to get the news out. Uh, right. You know, which right. direction is it going? Who do I notify first? Blah, blah, blah. It's just, yeah. well, it was a couple of nights ago and it's a really great recording and that's it. <laughs> yeah, that's it. That's all you need. Yeah. 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 And I think that's, it's less, that less competitive element is really nice. Hopefully that's not going to, that's not going to change. Mark James Pearson is a naturalist and a knockmig aficionado in Yorkshire, UK. You can find him at Mark James Pearson on Instagram and at Mark the Birder on Twitter. Thank you so much for your time. I hope you end up having a, a great fall, although it's probably mostly over where you are. This is never over. It's, it's never, never over. over. It's never <laughs> over until mid-November and then it all starts again. But no, it's uh, it's going really well and it's been a pleasure to uh, to talk to you and take care of yourself. 
American Birding Podcast is brought to you by the American Birding Association. If you enjoy this podcast or any of the free resources the ABA provides, please consider joining the ABA. It really helps us out, especially in these continuing uncertain times. We have memberships at whatever level works for you, from student memberships to full family sustainer memberships. You can get more information at aba.org slash join. I want to make a special shout out to Chad Kramer of Washington, Illinois, Evans Lodge of Chapel Hill, North Carolina, Chris Beasley of Chesapeake Beach, Maryland, Lisa Keitel of St. Paul, Minnesota, Cherie Davis of Marquette, Michigan, Ian and Michaela Riley of McMinnville, Tennessee, Adam Mutchler of Webster, New York, and Derek Urbanowski of Bellingham, Washington all of whom joined or rejoined the ABA recently and noted the podcast as a reason for doing so. Thank you so much for that. You guys are great. And welcome, or welcome back to the ABA. Executive producer of the podcast and president of the ABA is Jeffrey Gordon, who notes that when you contact your senators about the ESA, make sure that you are not mistaking it for the European Space Agency, because even for them, that's a little out there. Technical production comes from John Lowry, who accidentally mistook the Endangered Species Act for the Entomological Society of America, which was a mistake that bugged him for weeks. Additional help comes from David Hartley and Greg Neese, whose passionate defense of emotional support animals greatly moved a filibuster-proof majority of the Senate to pass a bill to protect their right to bring a golden-cheeked warbler on an airplane, which is something, I guess. You can find us online at aba.org, on Facebook at facebook.com slash birders, on Instagram at American Birding Association, and on Twitter at ABA. I would encourage you to do an environmental site assessment on your closest ecologically sensitive area, especially if it is in El Salvador or Equatorial South America. You'll probably want to use your birderly enhanced situational awareness to do it. You know, just run out an ESA, 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 ESA. Which also doubles as a mnemonic for black and white warbler, it occurs to me. Questions, comments, corrections can come to podcast at ABA.org. I'm Nate Swick. Thank you for listening. Stay healthy. See you next week. <laughs>